Sabah al-khair. Sabah al-yasmin from Bethlehem. On this morning's podcast, we're very lucky to be joined by May Khadr Kakish from the U.S. May is originally from Jerusalem, and she's been behind two great initiatives. One is Almond Fig, her, her Instagram, very active, beautiful food blog, and then April for Arab Food, uh, which is also a great campaign where people join in with their food pictures and recipes and stories. May, it's a pleasure having you with us. It, the pleasure is all mine. Nice to connect with you, Chef. May, you're you're quite representative of a lot of Palestinians. You're very diverse in, in your family. So how about we start Correct. with this? Sure. I grew up, um, I was born and raised in Jerusalem. I grew up to uh, Palestinian parents and grandparents. Uh, my dad's parents or my dad's, my grandparents from my father's side come from Rafidia Nablus. Um, my, uh, they both uh, left uh, Rafidia and came to the Jerusalem area. My grandfather studied to become an agriculture, agricultural engineer and stayed in the, in the Jerusalem area. And then my grandmother on my uh, mom's side, my mother's side, is actually Armenian and resides in Jerusalem as well. So most of my life, I spent it in the old city of Jerusalem. I went to schools there. And then uh, the high school part of my life, I spent it in Ramallah, where I went to school as well. So you're, you combine a bit of, of the north, a bit of the center, and the Armenian influence which is quite a trait we find in a lot of people in Jerusalem, which is a bit of this mix of Jerusalem having been historically the, the capital and where people came from different parts and then settled, intermarried with locals from Jerusalem. And it created this very particular identity, which is very Jerusalemite, which is very cosmopolitan. Absolutely. Is it something you, you carried in your food? Absolutely. I mean, in Jerusalem, like you said, people came uh, People came from the villages, people came from the refugee camps, people came from the north of Palestine, from the south of Palestine. You were able to meet and intermingle with people that came in and out of Jerusalem on a daily basis. So even growing up as a student, my teachers came from Beit Sahur, my teachers came from Beit Lahem, my teacher came from Ramallah to teach in Jerusalem. So that in itself, they poured, they brought with them different um, flavors, different tastes, different stories that made Jerusalem what, what it is while growing up. It was fascinating to me as a young child to actually walk the streets of Jerusalem, uh, to go to the old, I, uh, my school was the Lutheran school, which is now closed in the old city of Jerusalem. And as you walk, you are met and greeted by all the fallahat that are displaying all their goodies. And these fallahat came from the various villages that surrounded the West Bank and Jerusalem at the time. And they would come and pour their produce and display it there. And as you got older, you started connected with them, connecting with them, asking questions where you know where your produce where your tomato came from where your uh came from and so forth so it became this hub of people um at the time where i was in jerusalem i, I mean obviously after uh separating jerusalem and the closure this has changed quite a bit but in your in your cooking at home what was a typical dish at, at the khadr house 
a typical, my mom loved, I, I mean, what I call the two-pot meals, which I think a representation of many Palestinian homes. You would come home from school and there's always two pots on the stove. One would contain a rice or, or, or a carb of sort or a grain. And the other pot contains some kind of stew, either with meat or without a meat. And often is um, there in it is a vegetable with a sauce. So I always called it the two-pot meals. There was always two pots on the stove. Um, and that aroma carried through with me even in my adult life. I uh, I appreciate the comfort that those two pots carry, whether it's mbukhiyye uruz, whether it's ma'dube, whether it's bamye uh, and rice. Um, those dishes really bring a lot of comfort to me. And this is the kind of food I grew up eating. That's the best food. <laughs> the best food. Tabikh. We call tabikh, exactly. May the I, I'm just trying to imagine young May going to school to the Lutheran um, school in the old city of Jerusalem. Yes. W- where would you sneak out of going to school and go have a snack in the old city? My would, you, would you have sweets or would you have hummus and falafel? Like, where would you run off and, and have a nice thing to eat? <laughs> You know, the minute you uh, you enter the streets of Jerusalem, the minute you hit there's a there's a, there's a street dip that the street dips with a few stairs and it kind of splits to two sides. You either go to the right, to the left, or straight, or three ways, or straight. And right at that uh, intersection, I might call it, uh, there was, believe it or not, a pickle shop, and that was my absolute favorite thing to do. Um, you can buy pickles worth a shake. And if you can give him one shake and he would fill a bag of pickles for you. And to me, that was absolutely one of my favorite treats. Um, and then as you walk further, um, there was a shop that sold uh, simsimiya. Simsimiya, it's a mm. sesame candy. Uh, very nostalgic, very, and halawe. So this little tiny, tiny shop had glass windows and he would sell halawas of different kinds. Halawa is halva. Obviously, it's made from sesame paste, tahine, and filled with nuts or chocolates or cocoa or different um, different combinations. So he would sell it to you by the slice. And funny enough, even when I left to the U.S. as a student, Amti, Amtu Aida, my aunt, would always buy me a, not a, like a hunk of halawi, a hunk of simsimiya or the coconut uh, candy and still shipped it to me uh, as a student in the U.S. I, those two flavors, I mean, I know it sounds so weird, the pickles, um, it wasn't very common that you buy a pickles in a bag and just eat it, but I, I loved it so much. There, both shops are still in the old city of Jerusalem. That's Jerusalem. That's the, the fantastic thing about the old city of Jerusalem. I mean, I remember as a kid, I went to school in Jerusalem. and You did too. Yeah, and I I would I had relatives that had stores in the old city, so I would sometimes go off and see them, and I would walk down into the old streets, and and then you you'd find all these little little places that had just fantastic food or fantastic products. I mean, even beyond the cliche of Jerusalem, of the spice shop and the coffee shop, and you know right. the, the, there was all these. And I, I now you you're talking and you've taken me back to a memory which I, I had forgotten. Um, I love that. Abu, Kost, Abu Kosti, who did Abu roasted Kutsi. pigeons. Wow, Zahalil. I don't know if I know that. Abu Kutsi is the Kul, name ala, Abu Kosti, Kosti, Kosti. Oh, Kosti, Kosti. Abu Kosti, I'm going to have to look that up. Okay. The place, and is he still there? No, the place disappeared. The, the, the Abu Kosti, the old man, passed away. I wonder if my mom would know. My mom also went to the same school I grew up. Uh, my dad, my mother, my uncles, we all went to the same school. So I wonder if they would recall that memory. 
I, I'm sure they would because it, it was like an establishment in the old city and he would Fantastic. do roasted pigeon stuffed with rice or with frika and you'd have them there or he'd deliver like to, to people's homes because pigeons do take a lot of time to, to clean. Fantastic, them wow. Jerusalem got cut off from the rest of, of Palestine um, on purpose. Correct. And it changed a lot the relation of the city and like this little vibrant place that, that had all these fantastic eateries and, and great falahin that had beautiful products. But when you, when you moved to the U.S. And, and then settled in the U.S., did you take a piece of Jerusalem with you? Absolutely. I mean, um, Jerusalem, it's, it's amazing even to recall now going back to Jerusalem when I go to Palestine, when I go home to visit my family, my parents, my grandparents, and take my kids and have them relive the memories or in hopes to relive the memories that I once grew up with. Jerusalem has a specific sense and taste that will always, you can take, I mean, you, I'm guessing you're not referring to material things that you bring from Jerusalem, but even if it is material things that I brought with, it was often the spices, it was often the coffee, the bizarre, there was a bizarre shop, bizarre is seeds and nuts, and I, I'm really seeds obsessed. So I would bring things like this that would remind me that, I, you know, I could keep in my dorm room. I came to the U.S. as a student, obviously I was an 18-year-old, um, most kids would bring their candies, their favorite things, uh, things that would bring them comfort. And to me, that was the halawe and the simsimiya, the spices, the coffee, the candies, um, and the za'atar, well, um, the spices um, that came with me from uh, Jerusalem. But I think as I got older, I uh, or I was, uh, you know, figuring out my way as a student in the United States, a student that came from Jerusalem. I often refer to or dug deep to connect those memories and tastes and smells and recreate them off my Jerusalem. And I think this is how we, I end up at Almond and Fake. I wanted to recreate and relive those memories. Um, and uh, they became so vivid in my mind. I mean, when, when a person leaves a home, especially me, I was, I was very young. I was 18 years old. When you leave a home, it's almost assumed that you're going to start a new one at the new place you started. And that gap was a little bit hard. I didn't want things to get lost in the process. So I really hung on to those tiny little tastes, smells, whatever it was, and I tried to document them to keep that memory alive, if I may say. And that's where Almond and Fig was born. I wanted to vividly remember those things, um, the tastes and the smells of the old city, of my home, of Jerusalem, of Palestine in general. But how is Almond and Fig today is, is become an institution? It's, it's a go-to go page. People are, you know, look up at your recipes and your, your beautiful colors, because I mean, something that, that really... I find impressive in, in, in your display of, of our food is you manage to like really transmit this. this. I mean, every dish I see on, on almond and fig, I just feel it's a summer day in Palestine again. Thank you, Fadi. It means it means so much coming from you. Um, you know, um, as, as I said, as uh, you know, growing, you know, finding the new May in Chicago um, and the, my heart was still in Jerusalem. My grandparents, my family, my mother, my father, my friends, I left them all behind. So to me, it was so important to hang on to those memories and recreate those tastes and to, so I can live them in my memory. But then it wasn't until I had my children that I realized the importance of documenting these traditions. And honestly, it, was, it wasn't intentional. 
it was something I just started doodling, if I may say. Uh, and then I realized the power of stories. I realized the power of stories with my kids. You know, as we make each and tell them about, you know, I would whip out, take out from the uh, the pantry the bag of zakat that city sends, right? From Palestine every spring. Uh -huh. um, and then crack that bag open and tell the kids about city and show her the pictures that my mother sent of city, staining her little hands with the za'atar uh, because she's, you know, cleaning bushels and bushels of za'atar leaves. Um, telling them those stories and I realized the power um, of that, the power of telling stories, how it teaches people, how it teaches you know, heals, how it empowers, how it comforts, how it connects us together. So once I realized that, I, I took it as my responsibility to uh, to start writing more and more and recreating, to relive those memories, not only uh, for my children. I wanted to pass that connection to my children, but also to others as well. Um, food has this incredible sense of uh, humanizing things. It's so effective. And it's a great way, uh, when I started cooking and writing, I realized it's really an act of preserving. So that empowered me a lot and really gave me so much comfort in recreating um, those scents and uh, those recipes. Has it managed? Has food and your representation of our Palestinian food, has it managed to break barriers with people who who had a lot of misconceptions about what Palestinians are? Absolutely. I often hear, I mean, it's, I think it, first it's the food, but also humanizes as people as well. When you break bread with people, you connect with them instantly. When you share a recipe and you tell a story about, uh, the, you know, my grandmother, how she came about it. I'm also writing a story about my mother, my, my, my sister's mother-in-law who forged her way through, um, you know, through her kitchen. She, those stories resonate with a lot of people. They will connect with them. They, it will remind, it will remind them and bring something from their memory about their grandparents, their parents, their kitchens. Um, again, I think just the power not just by the food the power of stories can connect us and break those barriers it just it's so much easier uh to use food it it's so effective it humanizes and for example my neighbor um he would ask um if i would i was making an ushi on the grill outside actually two weeks ago and he said what's that smell it's so potent to me and i said it's an herb mixture that we spread on uh flat bread and it's called manaish and I had shared the dish with him and just effectively you start telling them about how city zatar and how I make it to make that. And the zatar grows in Palestine in the springtime. It automatically comes this, into this lively conversation uh, between people. The power of stories. Power of stories. Absolutely. That's, that's a bit what we lacked. And it's great to see people like you carrying our stories and, and putting them forward to the world and to, to our, also to our younger Palestinians, whether they're in the diaspora or here, that, that have for a few years walked away from our food. And I'm talking about chefs specifically, not, not about, I mean, everybody at home would still have a tabcha, but a lot right. of chefs did walk away from our kitchen and our heritage or reduced it to the mezzas and grilled meats And now we're seeing in the last 10 years, I would say, we're seeing really a revival of people going back to, to our traditions, modernizing them, challenging a bit our preconceptions and food, but, but really giving this, this new 
Palestinian food with it, with dignity. And I, I do disagree a bit about the use of the word humanizing, because for me, it's we're, we're human and we're human like all humans, despite oh, whatever people think. But but I, I say breaking the barriers. And I, I, li- I love what you're saying, because, yes, your, your next door neighbor without the manusha would have maybe not stuck up a conversation and, and, and heard your story. And they're really catalysts to, to carry our story. And, and in themselves, the products are catalysts. What's your favorite product? What's your favorite Palestinian product to work with, Mike? To work as a product in general? Um, definitely the olive oil. Definitely. Oh, I, it's going to be so hard to pick one. Can I pick a few? No, one. <laughs> then it's def- definitely, definitely going to be Zatar. Zatar. Uh, Zatar. Zatar is a big story, you know. Um, yes. It's been very often misrepresented as thyme or oregano. Yes. or But Zatar is Zatar, and it's a, it's a very specific plant that grows in, in our yes. part of the world. So Zatar think, yes. is, is your favorite, if you have to pick yes. one. Uh, and if I, if I ask you for three of them. Three of them. It would have to be Jibnina Belsikia because it really is quite impossible to find and replicate. And somehow I I miss it. I think here here's what I'm doing. I think I'm connecting the things that I'm so nostalgic about and connect them to my favorite things. Um, Zatar is number one. Jibnina Belsikia and Abulsi cheese is definitely up there. And it also has to be um, another one would be the Palestinians, probably some map. Ah. Jibna Nabilsia is quite, you know, you're, the, the sphere of, of images you're, you're using is, is very much nostalgic. And you, you remind me, today, Jibna Nabilsia, people buy it, um, here at least, they can find it in packed in small packages. But when we were kids, it would only right. come in a metal teneka, in a metal container, which we'd pop open and it had like a few kilos of cheese in it. Absolutely. And, you know, it's uh, it's something that my dad still hangs on. My grandmother is aging. My grandmother always made. And I think the reason I picked those three is because maybe um, they were always homemade at my house at, growing up. Siti always made, my grandparents being from Nablus, they always actually made their own jibna. Siti always made kebis. We call it kebis. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it translates to pickling or preserving the jibna in salt, um, salt solution. So to me, this whole process of, it would take weeks. Uh, for Siti to prepare the jibna nabilsiya, she would pickle it, preserve it in salt, and cut it, and put the um, um, nigella seeds and put the mastic in it. That smell and taste, and the way she cut it, the way she shaped it, and believe it or not, Fadi, till probably three years ago, Siti would still dry freeze and send me jibna nabilsiya for my freezer. Um, for me, this is uh, nothing will ever replace that ingredient. I think it's so hard to replicate being mass produced. Uh, it's something that's still my fa- my grand my even my father who still works in Nablus, he would actually only buy jibna nabilsiya in the tanaka in the metal bin from Fallahin in Nablus that that actually made homemade it. So to me, that ingredient is very, very specific. Often people ask me, why don't I have a recipe for knafe? It's my absolute favorite dessert in the world. I just think because it's so hard to replicate Jibna Nabilsiya and the Samna. Uh, both ingredients come from what we call something baladi. Baladi, I don't know if it translates into seasonal. It's not definitely not just organic, but it's a seasonal 
Siti, when she made the leban, labanya, it came from a seasonal halib. It came from a seasonal milk. I mean, these practices are going away with time because simply they're really time consuming. And the fallahat and the baddawiyat, the Bedouins that used to come to my city's doorsteps to deliver the milk, they would come at six in the morning to deliver fresh milk. And I remember the pouch she would come with. These, they're, the, for A, the Bedouins aren't coming in as they used to because of closures and roadblocks and all that stuff. Um, so these practices, I feel like they're fading away, which made me really attached. It's become so more, much more attached to these ingredients. But the, the, the stories and, and what you're describing, the, the people coming up to your grandmother's um, doorstep uh, with their produce and her buying them, it was also a way in which we preserved our culinary heritage. As Palestinians, we don't have a written um, culinary heritage. I mean, we don't have a guide culinaire escoffier. The, the recipes were preserved like this. I mean, I remember being at my grandparents' house and people would come up with uh, sabr, the, the um, prickly oh pear, or people yes. would come up with the cheese. And there would be a discussion happening between the person selling the produce and my grandmother about, oh, but how are you going to cook it? And what are you going to do with it? And, and that really preserved our traditions. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it's it's the same with za'atar. I mean, you said it perfectly. I think the reason I picked za'atar as one of my favorite ingredients is because how it's not really represented. Thyme isn't za'atar. Za'atar is its own herb. It's a blend of that herb. Um, Siti would add different spices to it, simsim, sesame seeds, and sumac. Um, so what you would find at a regular supermarket isn't in a little tiny bottle, isn't necessarily what we grew up eating. And that flavor is so different. The flavor profile is so different than what's um, commercially marketed now, especially outside of the Arab world. Of course, and, and even in the Arab world, I, I sometimes do, do tastings for, for some of the... Um people who are trying to export produce um, and, and they come up with products and they say, you know, this is za'atar and you just taste it and you're like, wait, no, no, this is not za'atar. This is, this is, um, this is, this is far from being that original taste we, 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 we produce and we find. Um, but that whole tradition of muna where people would stock and your grandmother would stock her, her produce for, for the rest of the year. So it was very seasonal and every season there would be a couple of products that she would preserve, whether it's by drying, whether it's by picketing like the jibna, whether it's uh, by making a jam out of them. Um, but you, you're now you're, you're in the U.S., you have your family in the U.S., you're, you're doing the, the almond thing, which is fantastic. What Thank next? You, what next, mate? What's next for What's you? What's next? I, uh, I, I haven't, I, I don't know if I know what's next. I, uh, honestly, the whole process of almond and fig started as a, I don't want to say a hobby, but it's almost like I felt the urge to, um, to document and write and uh, relive those memories for my children to begin with. But then it kind of took on its life of its own. It became much bigger than just writing recipes. And I think, um, it just it, the the stories turn much bigger than exactly like than creating just a recipe. I think to Google a recipe is pretty easy nowadays. But I think I wanted to be in charge of telling my own narrative. I think living abroad, living away from Palestine, I wanted to make sure that I tell my own story because otherwise somebody else is taking care of my narrative. Somebody else will tell my narrative. So what's next? 
I am not sure. I, I really, I haven't, um, I'd love to put them in a, in a book of some sort at some time, at some point. Mm-hmm. So that would be something that I would like to collect, even if it's something that would be for my children. I would love to preserve those to take them off just uh, the grid of Instagram and social media and, um, you know, uh, the internet and just kind of document them that way as well. So what's next? I'm not sure. <laughs> Inshallah, <laughs> book. We we need you know we need um we need a hundred Palestinian cooking books and we need, we need to be able to go beyond whatever differences there were because I I also feel a bit in the Palestinian food sphere um, a lot of people have tried to be the voice of Palestinian food and. I, I it usually drives me crazy, and and that's where I, I love your your family story. Of but Thank we're you. so diverse. There's not one voice. There's there's as many voices of Palestinian food as there are Palestinians. Absolutely, and I wanted to add another twist to my story to my family. Um, my both my sisters Zena and Reem, both married to wonderful men in, in uh, north of Palestine. They are both living in Nazareth uh, right now. One lives in, Re- in Rene. And in Nazareth, so that brought so much richness, richness also, to our family. Um, they both lived there, and um, I was telling you earlier, Fadi, um, my my sister's mother-in-law, who is an incredible farmer, incredible farmer in the Rene area. Uh, they lived obviously to 48, and she has knowledge and power on Palestinian forging like no one else. Uh, I know, um, and. Often when I go to Palestine, I spend so much time talking to my grand, and I consider her my grandmother too. So I'm blessed with three beautiful grandmothers. I talk to her often about, you know, the chubeza that she plucks on the side of the road. Uh, She often picks um, uh, charub for my dad just off the roads. Have you ever had charub akhdar, the green charub? Of course. Um, but, so but, this is something very, I haven't eaten it as a child. I used to think it's weird tasting and looking, but my, it's something now as an adult that wants to go back and say, you know, I want to revisit that charub tree and learn about that mm-hmm. pudding that my father loves from the green charub that uh, my mother's, that my sister's mother-in-law plucks from him on the side of road, on the sides of roads in in uh, around the Nasra. So there's so many stories that cannot be uh, that has and I believe in the power of oral history documenting what what people um how people gathered their food preserved it. It's part of our identity. What's really fantastic with the Nazareth area is there's a lot of herbs that we don't have in in, South, in central and south Palestine and and I mean, we have a, a little bit of a story that's become famous is the trio Jubran talking to me about a herb called Mu'ra, which we don't have in the, in the center in the south. Mu'ra. Mu'ra. Okay. Uh, until we, we had to go through um, a million people until I managed to get somebody who's driving down from Nazareth to Bethlehem to bring me a wow. bunch. And I had never seen this herb. It tasted a bit like huerna, a bit like wild mustard. A bit, but it's from the same family, but it's not none of them, and it's fantastic. And people in Nazareth use it with Lebanon. That's amazing. So, I mean, that's really the richness of our, of our country. It's beyond hummus or knefa or baba Absolutely. My sister, I wish I can recall the name of it right now. It's not coming to me, but I can probably text it to you later. Fadi, she had told me about uh, a green leaf that they pluck from the, in the springtime in, in Palestine, in the in the north area. 
and belifu, like they make it as rolled grape leaves and it has a distinguished taste. Um, so my sister and her in-laws, they would go up the, uh, the, uh, the hills and the, the mountains and they would uh, pluck that leaf and stuff it with meat mixture and cook it like they, we would do with grape leaves. So there's so many fascinating things I've never heard of. And I think that attributes to our rich cuisine, really, and how bountiful it is. And um, a person uh, sent me a message on my um, a a personal message and said, I wish Arabs represent or Palestinians share more of vegetables in our cuisine. And I, it hit me that I am uh, pretty much not a vegetarian, but I, I do consume, um, my diet mainly is vegetables and grains. And it you know, as an adult, it made me even explore more grains, more vegetables that are part of our um, um, environment or part of our, uh, what do you call it? Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. so it's, uh, um, it's it's really beautiful to be to be able to connect different parts of Palestine to learn, like you said, about the herbs, mm-hmm. about the greens, about the grains that might grow or the things that we are only able to forge. Uh, because they're not uh, they're not mass produced they're not you know commercially distributed or so forth exactly are, are you but the herb now you got me intrigued is it zamatut or is yes. it loof it, do you sounds it, zamatut do you wrap do you roll it we we roll I mean there's a lot of herbs we roll but we roll zamatut we roll zamatut sounds so familiar this might be it zayna what is it say again there's zamatut there's zayna no, we know Sena actually. We Siti cannot uh, Siti in in uh, in the Jerusalem area. She grows her own Sena, ah. so that's not it. And there's something uh, called Luf. Not Luf either. That that's a new one I learned. But Zahmatut, I think, is the one. It's Zahmatut. It looks a bit like. I mean, the color of the leaves looks a bit like African violets. But yes, it's not African yes. violets. After um, we hang up, I'm going to send you uh, pictures of what Zena shared with me. Great, because that's something they do in the north, which we we don't know at all in the center of the country. We've never, I mean, it grows here, but nobody's ever eaten it. And you know what's so beautiful is my sister knows how intrigued I am by things like that. And she would often, now my whole family knows how intrigued I am with things like this. So, and, and sadly, maybe, like you asked, what's next? Maybe my dream, I don't know if that's what's next, uh, but th- my dream was to go to Palestine and to, uh, to travel north to south, uh, eat with people in their own homes about, you know, share the food that makes Palestine uh, cuisine what it is. Um, I um, I do it in my humble uh, humble ways of, you know, connecting my family, sitting in my city, uh, whether she's in Jerusalem or the other one that's Armenian or the other one that's in Nazareth, and talking about Zahmatu, talking about Hwerne, talking about Khubbeze. Um, I will share a few photos with you. Uh, so now they know to even themselves to document it. They they uh, they take pictures when they go foraging. They uh, they take pictures of the end up the dish and they tell me about it. So it's really beautiful how this became uh, even just among my family, just a network of things that we talk about and we want to document. That's fantastic, May. It's, it's really yes, we need to document all of this and we need to keep on cooking. You know, as I cook and as I write and as I document things, it became, it sustained me in a way. It um, it really helped me, um, it helped sustain my cultural identity in a way, uh, especially with, the, you know, that, that I'm away from home. And I think to me, this is why I, I kept going and doing what I'm doing with Almond and Fig. It's fantastic. <laughs> May, thank you for being with us this morning. 
You're such a pleasure, Caddy. It was wonderful to connect with you until we eat together in Palestine one day. Inshallah, we'll 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 have soon when when all of this is over, you'll you'll come back and we'll. we'll I can't wait. Take I you can't wait. Around. Can't wait, Chad. Inshallah. We'll take you around Bethlehem Market um, to, to see a bit of our local, local, local produce in Bethlehem and meet, meet Even, the great... I, I heard uh, your segment on uh, with uh, Chef Mohammed. It, it's absolutely correct. Local, local, local. Really. We have so much. We need to um, empower our farmers. We need... We, exactly. You know, May, it's about... People often ask me, but, but why are you doing what you're doing and I say look I I am in a building the restaurant's in a building that's from 1738 we're two minutes away from the farmer's market and I'm in Bethlehem if I wanted to do something else I'd be somewhere else doing something different somewhere else but what attracted me to your um I found you by accident obviously I was you know I'm always looking um reading about um chefs and other people and other people's work and i think this is what attracted me to what you're doing fadi is when i saw your pictures in the streets of beit Lahan in the farmer's market oh did so much i felt like you're taking the produce here here you are it's mostly and you go to your um to your restaurant and i love the, the idea of actually you know we all um we all, I, I traveled, obviously, away from Palestine very, very far, Mazbut, and um, I have a new home here in Chicago, and there's a lot, my neighbors um, are, you know, the neighbor was telling you about the love of the Manish, he's Polish, and he brought so much into my my life from his cuisine, his family's cuisine, and so forth, so it, I became, it became, it's okay to, I think it's important to preserve our food and document it as is, and even, but give the food its integrity before we um, change it up before we twist it around to adapt to our new environments. How's that? We need that's fantastic because we need foundations. You you can look. I the the food I serve at my restaurant has nothing to do with what I'm doing with the podcast. With the podcast, I'm going back to traditional recipes. But if I didn't have the traditional recipes, and if I didn't come from that palette and that technique and all of that identity, I wouldn't be able to be modernizing in a certain manner, Palestinian food for, for my guests and, and, and for the, the, the pleasure of people. But it's really, you know, I, I keep saying without Um Nabir, Um Nabir is the, the lady I start my day by going to visit in the market and she has herbs wow. and, and mainly herbs from the village of Urtas, south of Bethlehem. Well, I love that village so much. Exactly. And without Um Nabil, uh, chefs couldn't exist because they are the source and they're the origin. Of course, I drive her crazy because when I start saying things like, oh, I blanch the bamia, bamia being the gombos, <laughs> she's like, oh, but that's not how we do it. And, you know, we've been doing it for 100 years and that's not how we do it. But it's great because that really allows me to, to be inspired by what she does and then do my own interpretation or work with my team to be able to to carry like a, a very different representation of Palestinian food and and that's a, th- a thing which we all need to be doing i think it's you know going back to the source going back to the origin before we we start doing different things i mean it's without this foundation we cannot we cannot create cuisines that are 100%. modernized 
even when I talk, like I often, when I go, you know, I said, Siti, call me and I'm going to, Siti lives above us. So it's really easy. And I spent the majority of my life growing up in her kitchen. So it was, she had this open door policy. She, was, she wasn't one of the grandma that shushed us away. She she always gave us some jobs to do. And, mm-hmm. you know, we we're the, you know, like everybody, every Palestinian kid plucked the Mluchia, plucked the Meremiya and the Shefna and we stepped on her, Khabisa. And we did so much that we, um, to bother her but she was always including us in her kitchen and 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 sometimes when i offer my ideas she not she's insulted but she goes that's not how we do it yes that's why it's a big that's why it now doesn't taste it's good so they they hang on and i think it's important to also write about that to document the origins not just the the people the way that people cooked i think it's it's beautiful the way city lingered on the all day long while i whip it up in half hour now you know it's uh there's a beauty in that whole slow process of creating um that i think come in as you know as we you know as a busy mom of three between work and cooking i want to cook it fast i'm gonna look for ways to make it fast right yep but sometimes as i watch her cook and i um there was a particular dish she made when i was in back home she made salwa. i don't know if you heard about that or yeah. if you call it something else fatty no i know what salwa is so that's one of my favorite dishes, and she always made that for me. And uh, to see her cook, I mean, honestly, it took her hours. And from picking the hadas slowly, from, you know, uh, washing the, the the rice so many times. And she took she took so much pride in her cooking process and, the, you know, the length of time that it took her to prepare any dish. It just, there was something therapeutic about being in her kitchen doing all that, you know, when I have time. But now if I would make it in my home, it's a different story, probably. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's different. Um, time in, in, in our cuisine yes. and in all cuisines, time is, is of essence. And a lot of our cooking methods are, are very slow-cooked foods. Um, they're long cookings. And then what usually people do at home if they don't have time to cook, what, what is the quickest dish to do in Palestine? It's a ma'luba. And, uh, you know, Maluba just seems to be the, the dish that's done when, when you don't have time. Yeah. <laughs> it's pantry ingredients, pretty much. And yes, so that's the beauty of Palestinian cuisine. There's so much that relies on our pantry. When I when this whole thing happened um, with the virus, with COVID, Siti, I was talking to my grandmother and she said, Yes, Siti, is that indic zaytun or indic adas? Exactly. Exactly. He's right. We cook so often. We dig deep into our pantries, and we cook often from there many dishes. So it's beautiful that way. Of course, and and that's really, you know, you're talking about the virus. When when Bethlehem went into lockdown, um, the government announced lockdown at six in the evening, and they said by ten o'clock people have to be home. And so I, I went out to get some stuff for the house, and I was stunned looking at people in shops. And seeing what they were buying, they were buying pantry ingredients. Absolutely correct. Because that's amazing. They could plan. So people were buying dried chickpeas and dried um, beans and, and, and yep. lentils and frika, things that they knew they would be able to use for the next two, three, four weeks if, if lockdown went on. Um, and that's really yes. It, it, it comes from the. From the Nemliya, from where where we Absolutely. used to, our great-grandmothers used to keep 
Um, before the invention of the fridge, used to keep all produce in their kitchens. And it's called Namliya because it, it protected from the Namil, which are the ants. So it was a, a grilled kind of closet or a hunger or something they would hang up. But that's really where it comes from. And that's where you had your samna, so your ghee, you had the olive oil, you had the jams that you had done across the year for the season. And then you just have to deal with it. And, you'd and cook you just with have it. to deal. And we, and you know, we Palestinians know that pretty well. We live through the first intifada, the se- I mean, the newer generation, first intifada, second intifada, and then the Gulf War, too. I mean, I remember vividly living off Namibia in the Gulf War. I don't know uh, if you were in Palestine at the time, Fadi. Yes, I we, was. A whole entire three months, we were living out of Namibia. And I think the produce that we had was potatoes and onions. I was stuck at my parents' house. I, I was living with my parents. And I had quite a bit of flour at the house. But I didn't have fresh cheese. And wow. a day or two after the, the, the curfew was imposed on us, I, I heard some some animals in, in a lawn next to us. I looked up and there was this Bedouin lady who had her sheep with her. And it was the season. So I said, do you, have, do you have any um, cheese and milk? And she said, well, milk, yes, and cheese, I have some. I said, are you going anywhere? She said, no, you know, we're stuck. There's a curfew, so I'm going to stay in the lands around around this bit of the area. Fantastic. And I said, look, we'll make... Exactly. I said, look, we'll make a deal. I'll bake bread, (laughs) and I'll give you bread, and you give me cheese. I love that story. And we went on like this for for a few weeks um, until they lifted the curfew for a few days, and then people moved around. um, Exactly. Where I was lucky to have, like, fresh cheese practically every three days given to me. And I baked bread and, and gave that lady and her family I some love bread. That story. So it just I worked. Love it, but that's but that is Palestine. That is how a lot of people did things. I mean, it still happens in the yes. market. I, I'm lucky to to work with a fantastic baker called Eamon Shweki, whose whose family has been bakers for for four generations, and they have I mean, they have like this very strong. Um, social responsibility without calling it social responsibility they basically give out free bread to people who are from fragile backgrounds uh, but then he also exchanges bread with his neighbors I mean the neighboring shops so there's one guy who gets the, the Nabilsi cheese because he's from Nablus and Amazing. Ayman gives him bread in lieu of the cheese and then with somebody else so it's quite interesting that this is something that happens between neighbors it happens in the market there's this you exchange know, of food this is what I love about Palestine. I um, I remember uh, Fadi two summers ago when I was home. My dad uh, my dad works for Nablus, right? Okay. So I told him I said uh, I'm gonna come visit you at your place, and then we wa- I want you to take me to the market. Nablus is a hub of view. I mean, honestly, Nablus is um, is a food mecca. No, I I I adore. I mean, I love Jerusalem, but my, Nablus has its own eclectic ways of doing things. Um, so he took me to the market and we went from the sabuna to the to the masna al tahina to I mean where they um, do the tahina paste, the tahniya. Um, we went all over and then we went to the shop. It's an antique shop. My dad lo- knows how much I love to collect uh, different things for food photography and stuff like that. And it's his friend who, um, and I told him we're going on to the market. What, you know what he did? He closed his shop and decided that he's going to take me from as a native. He's going to take me into the old city of Nablus and oh. show me around. I, to me, that was beyond generous. That was beyond um, what I could have asked for. 
This is the beautiful thing when you say when you say you know you depend on your baker and he depends on the next one and he gives him cheese in return he gives him bread when you exchange with the Bedawiya. I think these stories in Palestine are so so beautiful. Yep, that's Palestine. Which makes me homesick now, and I wish I can go tomorrow. You'll you'll come back very soon. Inshallah, Fadi. Inshallah. The goal was to be the summer, but God knows, I have no idea what's in plan. Inshallah. When when's all of this over? Inshallah, Fadi. I can't tell you how fun this was to talk to you. To be honest, it. Um, it's, it felt like a hug from home. <laughs> Thank you, May, and, and I, I love the spirit you have. Um, you're the best. Th- Thank you, you for being the opportunities us. that you're allowing us to speak, Kamal Fadi. It's not just, you know, you're connect with your podcast. You're connecting people from all over with different perspectives and different feelings and different. Um, I think it's beautiful. Thank you. The, the goal is to try. I mean, it started with, with the lockdown, and the idea was to bring a bit of happiness to people that are locked up and a bit of yeah, hope. Yeah, I love that. And, and really, it's, I've been lucky with, with great guests um, like you. who, who It's are, our what, honor. It's my honor. Thank you. And it's really giving like people this, this very nice insight into each one of the people that are contributing. Um, everybody's been extremely kind in, in their time. Um, in in their flexibility and, and that's fantastic. Thank you, May. 